You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, it's Friday, early afternoon in Jerusalem. It's another hot April day, and it's execution day. The smell of death is in the air. The word is spread, and the, ca- the crowds have gathered, and uh, just outside of town, off the Damascus Road is a place called Skull Hill. And the numbers of people begin to gather there to watch the horror and the entertainment of crucifixion. Perfected by the Romans, it was a torturous, long way to die. Where they would often tie people to trees, tie people to posts, tie people to cross beams, sometimes beating them, sometimes nailing them to the cross leaving him there to die, to suffocate, to be pecked apart by birds and wild animals. People cheered, people laughed, some shouted, some mocked, some threw rocks, some of them gambled as to who would die first. Those that loved them would cry. This day, the event started at 9 a.m., crucifixion was very punctual for the Romans. They were very timely people right at 9 they began to hammer the nails through the hands of the three on Skull Hill that day. But for one of them, the day began hours and hours earlier, 1 a.m. in the morning through a series of trials, court appearances. One of the three hanging there in the middle, his skin hangs tattered and torn, his face bruised and swollen. He obviously is going to be the one to die first. His eyes are barely open. A crown of thorns pressed into his skull. Blood is everywhere. The man in the middle, he will not last long. But there's something different about him. Because of the three, he is innocent. Isaiah 52, 14 says this about the one in the middle. It says, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was even a man. That man in the middle, we know, is Jesus Christ. And from that place in the middle, he gave seven last phrases before he gave his life. These weren't the last of Jesus because he spoke again, for he rose again from the dead. And he came back and he talked to Peter and he talked to Paul and he talked to John. But these are the last seven phrases before he gave his life for us. And his entire ministry and his mission is wrapped up in those seven phrases. Probably some of the most precious words that Jesus spoke are in those seven last words of Jesus. And so far, this is where we've been. We have Jesus as he was being ripped to shreds. He was crying out in prayer to his Father in heaven to forgive those that were persecuting him and hurting him. His first cry that we looked at first week was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he hung there on the cross, the two criminals on either side began to talk to him and to each other. One began to mock and condemn, and the other one appealed to the Supreme Court of the universe and said, Remember me 
you are the Messiah. And Jesus' second words on the cross were, so, were words of assurance as he told that man on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. As he hung there dying, the only few handful of people that were at the cross that knew him were there, and one of them was his mother. And from the cross, as he hung there bearing the weight, doing the business of saving the world, he saw his mother, and he reached out to his earthly mother, and he called out to her, and he said, Woman, behold your son, referring to the apostle John who was there. And he said, John, behold your mother. Though he was about the business of giving his life to the world, he was still at heart a family man who cared deeply and deeply for his family, for his mother. So here's where we are. Three phrases, a sign of forgiveness, a sign of affirmation, and a sign of affection. Then the sun disappears. Let's pick it up in Matthew 27, verse 45. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. Now, what's interesting about this, by the way, is that even in secular history, there's recorded a mysterious blackout at the time of Christ's crucifixion. We don't uh, know exactly how long it lasted, but there was a mysterious, well, we know in the Bible it said it was three hours, but history says that during that time, there was a, a strange darkness that covered the land Some accounted it to an eclipse, but the problem with that is it was a full moon and there's no way that a full moon would have eclipsed the sun in the middle of the day for three hours. It was a miracle of darkness. It was as if the entire of all creation was weeping for the death of the Son of God. This thick black darkness, the crowd is silent and Jesus is silent for three hours. This was not normal. This was not something anyone expected. Some ran in fear. Some stood in amazement. And then suddenly, after three hours, the sun came back and all eyes were fixed on the man in the middle. And he says this, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Some translations say, Eloi, Eloi. It goes on to say that this means in Aramaic, it is believed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling to Elijah. For they heard the words, Eli, Eli. Now those that thought he was calling Elijah were the Roman soldiers and Roman citizens. Says they thought that he was delirious. And look, he's crying out to dead prophets. So immediately... One of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and they offered it to Jesus to drink. Basically, they're like, he's delirious. He's shouting crazy things. Get him to shut up. So they put cheap wine on a sponge trying to basically medicate Jesus to be quiet. Jesus at that moment refused. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They were mocking him. They thought Jesus was losing his mind in the last moments of his life. But he was fully aware of his words and what they meant. 
And this is probably the most controversial of all of the sayings on the cross. There's a, a few different views of what he was saying. I mean, what is he saying? What does it mean? Father, forgive them. We know what they, what they, they know not what they do. We understand today you will be with me in paradise. We understand this father is a prayer. This Today, you will be with me as a conversation and, and behold your son, behold your mother. This is a conversation. This is a cry of desperation. Or is it? What happened? What does it mean? To read his words is to be there. It's to walk on a holy ground. Like Moses before the burning bush, we must tread very lightly on this phrase. Some would say, This is kind of the traditional meaning that some say that at that moment, as he hung there and the weight of the world was on his shoulders, the father who could not look at sin, forsake his son and turned away, abandoned his son because he was bearing sin and the father cannot look at sin. Now, if you've ever been raised in church, that's what you might have heard. That's what you might have even taught that the father could not bear to look upon sin And God had forsaken God. Now, this is an area that we might disagree on because I don't think that accurately portrays what is happening based upon Scripture as a whole. So I want to challenge you today. If you've ever thought that, just allow yourself to let the Bible talk to you for just a moment. Not some preacher who's getting emotional who's trying to tell you that at that moment, the father turned away. I mean, I've heard it preached time and time again. It's in videos, it's in, but there's no evidence that that is what is happening. But we know that what he said is strange. God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean? Well, I'm gonna tell you what that phrase does not mean. And then we're gonna talk about what was happening when he said that. So first of all, I want you to write this down. By the way, the view that Jesus was actually abandoned and forsaken by the Father confuses some because he is 100% God. Jesus is 100% human. So this is what it does not mean. I want you to write this down, and that is Jesus was not and cannot be separate from the Father. This, is, this must get deep inside of your life. If you are a Christian, there's not God And then there's Jesus. There's God who is the Father, and there is God who is Jesus, the Son, and there is God who is the Holy Spirit. There is not three gods. There is one God who is three persons, the mystery of the Godhead, and they are one. In fact, Jesus said this. He said in John 10, 30, he says, I and my Father are one intrinsically impossible to separate. He says, we are one. In Colossians 1.15, the writer says that Jesus is the very image of God in the flesh. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus declares himself and says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the very eternity beginning. I am the very eternity future. I am God. We've talked about this before. Jesus very clearly defined himself as not just a part of God, a piece of God, filled with God, but he is God in the flesh. John 16, 32 says, you disciples will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, 
for my Father is with me. He says, you know what? There's going to be a day, guys, when you run off and leave me. But there's one who will never leave me alone, and that is my Father, because we are one. Jesus never loses his divinity for a single moment on the cross. While the weight of the world was on his shoulders, while the sin of mankind was placed on him, he did not lose his divinity, his Godhead, his place in the order of the universe, not for a single moment. For if he did, he would not be God. For no man can bear the sins of the world. It was God on the cross. You need to get in your heart. Jesus was not and cannot and will never be separate from the Father. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they are one. Jesus, write this down, the second thing, that that phrase, by the way, here's the phrase. Let me go ahead and put that up. He says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It does not mean that Jesus was not abandoned by the Father. Jesus was never abandoned by the Father. He was not alone. That verse we just read, I am not alone for my Father is with me. You may run out. God will not run out. By his very nature, the Father could not turn away from the only begotten Son, deity in the flesh. By his very nature of who he is, Jesus Christ is the crux of, of history, the one whose shoulders all of mankind is resting on and sitting upon and riding on, the one who trusted the Father step by step all the way to the cross. This was his defining moment, and then God abandons him? No way. This is not even possible, but it's also not biblical. Psalm 37, verse 25 says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. I've got additional scriptures in your, in your handout and your worship guide that basically God cannot deny himself. He cannot cr- contradict himself for God is faithful. He is just. He will always be there for us. He cannot be separated from the Son. God was with him the whole time. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says this. He says, to that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So while Jesus hung dying on the cross, even at that moment, my God, my God, why? God was in him reconciling the world to himself. In fact, Hebrews 10 says that at that moment, God wasn't disturbed and angry and upset and turning away from sin. But the Bible says in Hebrews that he was pleased with what he saw. For this was the plan all along. And he took pleasure in the fulfillment of their plan. Jesus, this is what did not happen. The next thing is that Jesus was not defenseless. A lot of people think, poor Jesus. Poor Jesus, he's helpless. They arrested him against his will. He did nothing but love people. He did nothing but heal people. He raised a man from the dead. Come on. 
Poor Jesus. Poor, poor Jesus. He's helpless. He's de- Somebody help him. No one to help him. He's all alone. And then his own father in heaven turns. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Oh, poor Jesus. Jesus was not defenseless. He could have stopped this entire thing at any given. He could have st- he could have pulled his hands off the cross and said, "Enough, guys!" Laser beam him like Superman, Zzzz, you know, with his eyes and burn him. Yo, where's Pilate? You know, but he didn't. Philippians two six says, "Who being in the very nature God, they're talking about Jesus. Jesus is in the very and who he is is very God, all one hundred percent. His nature that means." The deepest core of who he is, is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Actually, the word there is to be, uh, is a word that's often translated as abused or here to be taken advantage. It's one of the most harshest words in the entire Bible. It's the only place it's found. And the actual word means he did not use this authority to rape anybody or to force himself on anybody. Though he was God, he could have done whatever he wanted. He had every right. By his nature, he had every authority on the planet to force all of creation to bow at his feet. But it says he did not consider this equality something to use for his own advantage, but rather he made himself. The word there is kenosis. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Jesus made this decision. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he became a man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death. And then it says, even death on a cross. The most violent, vile, shameful moment of a person. This wasn't just death. This was a long, torturous, naked death. They stripped you naked, beat you to a pulp, and left you there for the animals and creation and people to mock and pick at you. It was long, it was tortuous, it was painful, it was shameful. And he says, Jesus didn't just die, but he subjected himself to even death on a cross. God and man, he allowed himself to suffer and die. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the, to the glory of God the Father. This was something Jesus decided. He wasn't going, God, where are you? Why, God, why? He was like, this, I'm embracing this cross. I'm gonna explain that phrase in a minute because I think it's been misunderstood and used to portray an image that is not accurate But Jesus was not defenseless. He could have relieved his own pain. He healed the leper. He put skin back on the flesh of melting skin. He put an ear back on a soldier. He brought the dead back to life. He brought the maimed who were disfigured into wholeness and healing. Jesus could have done it. He could have relieved his own pain, but he didn't. He could have called down the armies of heaven, but he didn't. John 18, 16 says, my kingdom, he's talking to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants or the angels would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He says, you know what? I've got this under control. You 
are not in control. This is when Pilate asked, are you a king? He says, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a king. But it's not of this world. My kingdom is way bigger than this world. Matthew 26, 53, he says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legion of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled to say it must happen this way? Jesus said, you know, at any given time, disciples, at any given time, guys, I could call down thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. I could call the host of heaven, the angels, the armies of God, but this has to be this way. He knew the Father would always be there for him, but this was the way it was to be. Jesus was in control the whole time. This was no mistake. Here's the last thing, is that Jesus was not forsaken. But the scripture says, Matthew 27, 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God must have forsaken him, right? Jesus cried out, why? If Jesus was not forsaken, what does that mean? He was bearing the weight of sin in his humanity and he cries out in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is actually quoting a verse from the Old Testament in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally the word is, my God, my God, why are you silent? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? You see, Jesus, this is amazing. I want you to think, when you hear the word Psalms, we think of a book. When they hear the word Psalms, they think, of songs. The Psalms were sung. Now we don't have the sheet music to the Psalms that they sung. So a lot of times, a lot of worship writers and leaders, they will take the Psalms and they will make, they will write new music and use and sing the songs that are in Psalms. But Jesus, when he cries, my God, my God, why? He is singing a song. Psalm 22, verse one. He begins to sing a song, and he doesn't cry out in a language that the Romans can understand. He cries out in the language of the people. Aramaic or Hebrew, the common language of the day. A word, a language that only every good Hebrew would know. Now, there is what is known as God's top 10 songs. You know, we have our top 100 hit, Billboard 100. Well, there's a lot of Psalms in the Bible, and God has his top hits. He has his top 10, and, and apparently one of them Maybe even number one was Psalm 22. Because at the cross, Jesus begins to quote the lyrics of one of the greatest songs in the Bible. And not only was it one of the number one songs, but every Hebrew person in earshot would have known the words that he was speaking. The soldiers didn't. They thought he was drunk. They thought he was delirious. Or they thought he needed to get drunk, rather. They thought he was delirious. So they began to try to give him alcohol. He was speaking to Jewish ears. He was quoting scripture. He cries out a song. To help you understand it, here's a video. Help you understand about the great power of a Hebrew teaching method called remez. (laughs) 
Iloi, Iloi, Lima Sabachthani, recorded in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus is doing, and what he often does, is he quotes a part of a passage and expects his disciples to know and understand the rest of the passage. It's a rabbinic technique called remez. It saves time. And there's more in Psalm 22, more that Jesus is saying, more that Jesus is fulfilling. You might want to pay attention here to the rest of what Jesus is saying from the cross. You may ask, has God left him? Is Jesus suddenly alone? wondering where his father has gone. To help us understand, remember this. Jesus never, never leaves the text, not even as he gives up his life. He knows the text, he quotes the text, he lives the text. What text do you ask? The Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus knew. Remez is a common rabbinic or teaching method where you basically hint. The word remez means hint. It's where you hint at something. Uh, I want you to imagine it like this. It's, it's like when you hear a line from a song, just one line, and then all of a sudden you get to sing in all the song. You ever, you ever done that before where you hear a line? On the way to church, I put Noel to the test. And uh, from the time we left our Woodbridge, she had to quote, she had to sing the same line over and over again because it was so annoying, and I wanted to know if she could actually do it. And she made it all the way to the parking lot here at the AMC, and she was singing, I love you, puppy. I love you, I love you, puppy, <laughs> uh, which is a ridiculously uh, dumb song by Jennifer Lopez, and it's so repetitive and annoying. And I said, I bet you can't say that all the way to church. So she did. So all the way, I love you, puppy. I love you, I love you, puppy. The whole way. If you've never heard that song, don't go looking for it. That won't change your life. But it is catchy. And guess what's in my mind? I love your puppy. I love you, I love your puppy. Oh, but you know what? Sometimes when you hear a song, it gets you singing all of it. See, that's what's happening here. Jesus, at the moment of his greatest suffering, when the weight of all of the mankind, past, present, and future sin is on him, he starts singing a song. And they knew the song. And all he had to do was get out one line. And every Hebrew person within earshot of his words knew exactly 
the song that he was singing. So let's take a look at the lyrics to that song in Psalm 22, verse 1. It says this, this is what they, as they looked at Jesus, would have been singing in response. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the part he quotes. Goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you are silent. You do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And the idea here is not that God is not there, but that he is silent. He goes, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises in you. Our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. He said, man, you are a God who is faithful, reliable, trustworthy. Your character proves that you will never leave us. He goes on to say, he says, but I am a worm. The word there is interesting. It's called tola. And the word tola is a worm that's actually blood red. He says, I am like a bloody red worm, not a man but scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. (laughs) Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You see, as Jesus is on the cross, he's thinking of Psalm 22. He says that one line and immediately his disciples who were near, those that were around, those Hebrews, even the religious leaders who were condemning him, They were infuriated as he began to sing a psalm of the Messiah, the psalm of the great suffering of the anointed one, the Messiah. He is fulfilling this psalm perfectly. He goes on to say, verse 11, he says, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. He says, People are gone, but Father, you are near. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. That is a reference to all the religious leaders who conspired against him. And he goes, roaring lions that tear, they pray. Their prey open their mouth wide against me. He says, those ruling authorities, the lions of the Roman authorities, they're tearing me apart. They've abused and ripped me to shreds. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. And all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a post herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This Psalm 22 is written by King David a thousand plus years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. And he says, yet my hands and my feet are pierced. He says, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments, which is what happened when he cried, Father, forgive them. The soldiers ripped his clothes off and they cast lots for his garments. See, this was not a cry of despair of being forsaken by God, but this was rather a cry of proclamation, a a declaration to the Jews gathered around him that, that I am truly who I've been telling you that I am. Standing before you, hanging on this cross, is fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. He says, I am who I say I am, and I am who you read about the Messiah I am who the Bible says 
I am fulfilling the scriptures right now. You need only to read a little further to see that the father has not forsaken him. It says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me, or you are not far from me is what it literally means. It says, you are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He says, deliver me from death. That's the cry. And verse 22 is the future. He says, I will in the future declare your name to my people in the assembly in public, I will praise you. He's declaring his resurrection and his deliverance from death. You see, at that moment, in that one line, my God, my God, why? He was giving a vivid portrait of the death, the suffering, the death and resurrection of the Messiah, the promise of the Father. He was singing that song. He was singing a song of deliverance and faithfulness and suffering and anguish. The father did not forsake him and he proved it for he raised him from the dead. And just to nail it home, Psalm 22, the very next verse in verse 24 says, or the, the, the verse 24 says, for he has not, everybody say has not. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. See this Psalm is saying, God has not left me. God has not abandoned me. God has not forsaken me. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember this day and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is amazing. The very last, he begins the verse. He begins this Psalm with my God, my God, why? And this Psalm ends with his last words on the cross, which we're going to talk about next week. He says, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the people yet unborn, he has done it. The literal translation of he has done it is he has finished it. And one of the last words, just before he gives his life up to heaven, he says, it is finished. You see, twice he quotes Psalm 22. The first part, my God, my God, why? And as he sang that first line of that song, all the Hebrews began to sing that song, remembering this passage, which they had memorized. And they began to look at Jesus and they began to go, oh my gosh, everything in that Psalm is happening right now. And the promise of his resurrection, it will happen. With his dying breath, he affirmed again that he was who he says he was and who the word of God says that he was. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God and the redeemer of all who believe on him. You see, there was a lot taking place, but what was not taking place was the father did not, cannot, will not leave the faithful one. So what did happen on the cross? Real quick, I want you to write these down. Jesus was on the cross because he was innocent because we are not innocent. He took the weight of the world's sin because the world is full of sin. We are sinners. We are in need of help and we are in need of saving. We are in need of a restoration between the Father and us. And without this moment of restoration, guys, listen, God is holy. He is good. He is just. He is pure. He is merciful, yes. He is loving, yes. But he is also just. He is pure, righteous, and holy. He doesn't wink at sin. Hey, that's pretty funny there. Try not to do that. He doesn't wink at sin. 
He doesn't, he doesn't find our, our sin funny. In fact, the Bible says his purity is the result of on us, it will be the result of wrath. It's like when you are a kid and a good parent disciplines his kid, right? If you're a parent and you love your son and your daughter, you will discipline them. And depending on how you feel about spanking, you might spank them or you might ground them. But if you love them, you will discipline because it's justice. And it's not just character building, but you're saving their life by reigning in their sin or their rebellion, their rebelliousness. The father says that, that if a father, if an earthly father who loves and disciplines his children, how much more will our father in heaven love us and care for us and look out for us and discipline us? See, God is holy. And without forgiveness of sin, we are going to get one amazing spanking from the father And the Bible says that spanking is an eternity away from his glory in a very real place called hell, a place of eternal suffering. The Bible says that at that moment on the cross, this is what happened when he was crying, my God, my God, those three dark hours. What was his cry all about? Here's the first thing, write this down, is that Jesus received the wrath of injustice. He, or the wrath of justice. He received on himself the wrath and justice of God. He did not become guilty, but he took our punishment. It's what it says in 1 John 4, 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Everybody say propitiation. If you spit when you say it, you said it right. So turn to your neighbor and say propitiation. Propitiation. <laughs> he said, but he has become the propitiation For our sins, some translations say the atonement or sacrifice. The word propitiation is much more in depth than just the word sacrifice or atonement. The word propitiation means wrath satisfier. That means the one who has received the wrath, that is Jesus. See, when you think of the Old Testament animal sacrificial system, basically they would say, God, we're sinners. God, we're going to kill this innocent animal. And then we're going to eat it afterwards. They weren't like God declared the sacrificial system as a way of atoning or covering or casting their sin on these animals. And then they would barbecue. They would have these, they would eat these lamb, the bull and the oxen and the goats. They would eat them. It wasn't just savagery. It was a symbolic picture of they were casting onto this animal. They were projecting wrath upon this innocent creature. And God, so please do not put your wrath upon us. But you see, an animal doesn't do the job. So there was, in some cases, there were times where they killed up to 100 animals a day. They killed thousands a month and multiple thousands a year. That temple was on fire all the time with animal sacrifices because no animal could truly cover our sin, but Jesus could. Hundreds of verses about this. This is what the whole meaning of the whole sacrificial system, they're saying, God, the lamb, not us. God, the lamb, hurt the lamb, sacrifice the lamb. God, bloody up the lamb, cut the lamb, let the lamb die. God, not us. Jesus on the cross in those three dark hours, he was saying, God, me, not them. He became the propitiation. He received the wrath and justice of God. John 3, 36 says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God still abides on him. Apart from Jesus, if you don't believe this propitiation 
then God's judgment is still upon you for Jesus was your substitute, which is the next thing. Look at Romans 3.25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the word propitiation. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Write this down. That In those three dark hours, Jesus took our place. Not only did he receive God's wrath, but he took our place. It should have been you. It should have been me on that cross. But he took our place. He was our substitute. He was our sacrifice in our place. The closest thing I can come to that, you might have heard me share this story before, is that I'm the youngest of three kids. And um, my, uh, uh, except for my half-brother, uh, my brother, who's, uh, who's uh, passed away, and my sister, who's older than me, they were both older than me. Um, uh, you know, when I was a punk kid, I got in trouble. You're all punk kids, punk. Uh, <laughs> Any boy that talks to my, my girls, punk. Um, so I was a punk. I was a punk kid. And uh, I, I got in trouble because my brother, um, he was the instigator. Um, sure. Now, I, I, I had rebellion in my heart, too. I, I remember there were many times. There was one time in particular where my brother and I, we, uh, we, uh, man, we lived and moved around so much. But there was this time when we, were in, uh, we lived in uh, Texas in Tyler somewhere. And uh, there was this trailer down the street from where we lived. It, was, it seemed abandoned. Quotation marks. Man, it was in a parking lot. Nobody had been there for weeks. Surely no one lives there. So we broke into it. We smashed the windows and crawled in. And we dug through this guy's camper trailer. Looked through all his stuff and went through all of it. And, and I don't know how in the world, but they found out we got in there. He came home eventually someday, maybe days later, but I don't know. It came back to us, and I remember, man, my brother was just getting it. Getting, he was wailing because my mom was just beating him. She loved him. <laughs> so she was disciplining him, right? And uh, I knew my turn was coming, so I started crying. <laughs> oh, it's going to hurt so bad, Kathy. My God, my God, why? <laughs> started quoting scripture, five years old. I said, God, why? And I remember my sister, older than me, she would step in. She would sometimes come between me and my mother because I was just a little kid. And she would often have mom spank her in place of me. Her, she had compassion on me for whatever reason. I was just an annoying little brother, five years younger than her. And I remember she, 10 years old, she would sometimes take the blame from me. She would sometimes say it was her instead of me to save me from getting... She would be my substitute and get the wax in my place. And as little as, as I can explain that, that's to a greater extent what Jesus did for us. You see, the Father's wrath is very real because he is righteous and holy and you are not, so wax are coming. But Jesus stepped in as the substitute and said, no, 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 Father, spank me, whip me, beat me. Let your wrath fall upon me. He took our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement. And that's what Jesus did for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to be our sin offering, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was the sacrifice in our place. Here's the next thing that happened in those three dark hours, is that Jesus bore our sin. He bore our sin. That means he took our sin. Jesus did not become a sinner 
but he bore or carried our sin. Jesus was cursed, but Jesus did not become a curse, for he is God. He is holy. Still, as Jesus is God, holy, pure, 100% God in full nature God, as he stood on the cross, he bore the sin. He carried the sin of the world. He was cursed for us, though he was holy every single step of the way. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Here's how I want to explain this. Um, who takes the garbage out to the curb when the trash man comes? Anybody? If you don't, I'm not going to your house. Because uh, who knows what your house looks like inside. No, somebody has got to take the trash out, right? You take the garbage out. Now, every now and then, you have leftover food, and you put it in the garbage, maybe uh, meat that should have been thawed, and you forget to, to cook it. You ever done that? And you have to throw meat away, you know? I know it's probably not a good use of meat, and, and, but it happens. Sometimes you, you throw food away, and you throw it in the garbage, and you take it out because it stinks. It's because bacteria is growing on it, and, and that, you know, smells from wasted food is the bacteria's waste. So you've got this smell of bacteria waste. The bacteria itself doesn't smell. It's their waste. As they eat it, they cycle of life. <laughs> they, uh, it smells. So you take the garbage out. Well, it may be out there three, four, five days before the trash man comes. So you've got to take it out, and you're, you're pulling it, and you pull the lid open to throw another one, and there's maggots everywhere. You ever seen that? Maggots. You know what maggots are? They're fly larvae. So the flies get inside of the, isn't this lovely? The flies get inside of the trash can. They start eating that meat. They start having babies, right? Beautiful cycle of life. Your trash is a science experiment waiting to happen. Try it this week. (laughs) What are you doing? We're making larvae. We're making maggots. Um, So you open it up and there's maggots. Or you you ever have to pick up a bag and it rips? (laughs) Anybody ever had a bag of trash rip on them? Come on. There's probably a man or two that's had to do that because the wives are usually calling the husbands to come clean it up with their kids or somebody. But if you're a single mom, you've had to deal with this too. And all of a sudden, maggots are like, oh, they're so gross. Flies, you know. And if you're the top person leaves your back door open, you're like, where are the flies coming from? The garbage. Someone's garbage. All right. So you take it out there, and you're like, man, this is disgusting. This is gross. Let me tell you something. No time, at no time did that trash can ever become trash. At no time does that bin become garbage. It carries the garbage. It has garbage put in it and on it, and it is wheeled out to the curb to be disposed of because you don't want that in your house. You don't want that in your life. You don't want those on you. That's nasty. It's gross. It's garbage. See, that's what Christ did for us. The Bible says he bore our garbage. He bore our sin. And I want you to think about this. Every time you think about garbage and maggots, I want you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Every time you take your garbage out to the end of that curve, I want you to think about how Jesus carried our sin, carried our garbage, carried our waste. He never became sin, but he bore our sin. He became the offering of our sin. He was cursed in our place so that we would not have to bear that garbage. Jesus bore our sin. So when you think of those maggots, I want you to think of your sin. Uh, Then I want you to think of Jesus bearing that. 
The second half of that verse, 1 Peter 2, 24, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That word healed means you have been made whole. You've been made right. He says, by that you might die to sin. Here's the next thing that happened on the cross. The last thing here is that Jesus broke the power of sin. See, when he died on the cross for our sins, when he bore the weight of it, those dark three hours, salvation was winning. Satan was losing. The earth was watching. Creation was waiting. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. Sin's power is broken. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of the song is a declaration of freedom from the power of sin and God's faithfulness. Romans 5 and 6 unpacks deeply the power of sin in our life and how it's broken through the cross of Jesus. Its bondage and its slavery are broken. Its chains of control can be broken. The power of its shame The power of its control, the cross has broken the influence of sin in our life, the power of sin. For that moment when all of hell's fury was laid upon him, when the full wrath of heaven was given, when the sin, shame, and regret, and the violence of sin was resting on him, he was thinking of you. This is what Hebrews says, 12.2. It says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, he had you on his mind. You are his joy. Those that say yes to Christ, those who will follow the cross and have the power of sin broken off of their life, those that acknowledge that Jesus took our place, bore our sin, was our substitute, received God's wrath in our place when we recognize the victory on the cross, not the shame only, but the victory. He says, man, there's joy in knowing that some of you will get this. Some of you will leave here and go back to the way you've always been. You think, well, that was a weird service. Those Christians are nuts. Or I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. Or that sounds nice, but nah. But I believe some of you get this. And for the joy that was set before him, your confession of faith, he endured the cross. As we as we leave today, I want you to think about something. Some of you might feel like God has forsaken you. I want to end with a, a thought, but before I do, I want you to watch this video and then we're going to pray.
forsaken me. Oh God, have you forsaken me? Forsaken me. Here's my challenge for you today as we as we close in prayer and we transition into our day. I want you to think about this all week long. There's a few things we can learn from that cry of Jesus on the cross. First of all, I want you to know that the deeper the intimacy, the greater the level of honesty you can have with God. I want you to know you can talk to God about whatever you're going through. You can cry out to God in pain and frustration with questions and even doubt. You can cry out in anger. But cry out. For the deeper the intimacy, the greater the honesty. Second thing I want you to learn from Jesus is that you can embrace pain and grief and still know that the Father is with you. This is a great moment here. Jesus was in a tremendous amount of pain, suffering, It wasn't just physical, it was spiritual as all of creation's wickedness was laid upon him. And you can know that in your greatest pain and grief, God is with you. You can cry out to him, you can talk to him. This is the last thing I want you to realize that Jesus taught us that God will never, 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 never forsake his own never forsake his own. He cannot. He will not. Here's what Isaiah 42, 16 says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. So do you feel forsaken? not if you're his 
the brutal, bloody, beautiful cross of justice and mercy. My God, my God, why? And the answer is I'm right here. Do not fear. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you, God, are with us. You're faithful, God. You've never deserted us. You've never let us down. You, God, those of us in this room have who have become your children through the acknowledgement of the sacrificial place of Christ on the cross. God, those of us that have the privilege to call you Father, God, you are with us. God, help us to know that. Heads bowed for just a moment. If you're here today right now and you need to know that God has not forsaken you, will you take a moment just right now to talk to him? Just say, God, I need you. Talk to him right now. Say, God, I need you. God, have you forsaken me? God, why? God says, I'm here. I'm not far. I haven't left you. I will walk with you through this journey. I will walk with you through this pain. I will walk with you through the unknown. I will walk with you through the suffering. I will walk with you through the mystery of your future. I have not and I will not forsake my own. God, thank you so much for that faithful promise that Jesus affirmed to us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.